So, Rosemary, I know you're a big uh, soccer fan or football fan. Uh, I don't know if you saw that Man City won the treble. I'm sure you were watching diligently like every good football fan does. I watched that game. I made myself watch it. Why? It was important to the people of Manchester. Are the people of Manchester important to you, Alan? It is because that's the home of Oasis. That's valid. They had a really good time in Manchester over the weekend. Let me tell you, it was party central. So so this week on the podcast, we're going to talk about Duke Energy selling some assets to uh, unregulated assets to Brookfield uh, Renewables and uh, for $2.8 billion, which is a couple more dollars than the city of Manchester spent on their celebration. Um, I'll, after that, we're going to get into RWE becoming the number four renewable company in the U.S. after their uh, merger or acquisition with Con Ed. Uh, and then also staying with RWE, the, the, the big German player there, uh, tying up with Jan de Nuel and some installation vessels for offshore wind in the future. And then we head over to the UK, and in particular Scotland, with Balmoral and their Hex Defense Scour Protection, which is uh, a new design and a, and a patented design to get rid of scour around uh, fixed bottom foundations. And then we're going to talk about the 2023 Collegiate Wind Competition, which was won for the second year in a row by Kansas State University's Wildcat Wind Power. And then Wind Farm of the Week this week is in the Netherlands. It's off the south shore of the Netherlands, Hollands Kust Seward. I'm Alan Hall, president of WeatherGuard Lightning Tech, and I'm here with the vice president of North American Sales for Wind Power Lab, Joel Saxon, and renewables expert, Rosemary Barnes. And this is the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Duke Energy has announced an agreement to sell its unregulated utility-scale commercial renewables business to Brookfield Renewable for approximately $2.8 billion, Joel. That's a nice, tidy amount. (laughs) Brookfield Renewable uh, is one of the world's largest owners and operators of renewable power and will acquire the business, including about 3.4 gigawatts of utility-scale solar, wind, and battery storage across the United States. Uh, Duke Energy obviously will, will book a, a profit of about $1.1 billion before this whole thing is settled. So it, I think it works out for both sides, Joel. Uh, the approval is going to end up finishing up the end of this year. So there's, there's a lot of legal going arounds and contracts and, right, and oversight that has to happen before you can close in this kind of business. The industry is really looking favorably upon this. Uh, it seems like Duke's trying to get into some new renewable projects that need us some cash to do it. Meanwhile, Brookfield, which is just a huge player, just adds to their portfolio. Yeah. I, you know, at the end of the uh, article here, we're looking at Duke's also progressing with the sale of its distributed energy business. So it sounds like basically everything at Duke is for sale right now. Like if you need a new pickup truck or something, you know, give them a call. They're, they're just dumping things. But I, but it's great to see this because I think um, in general, it will be a boon for the industry, right? So you're seeing someone else purchases the assets. Brookfield Renewable wants to build their portfolio. Great. Now Duke's got a bunch of more capital to be able to deploy for new prod projects, whether the projects are wind, solar, battery storage, whatever they're going to be. Um, they can now develop more and I can see this cycle turning over. Right, so Duke has another another side of them that's not just the this renewable asset generation. Right, they have a whole they're a 
they're a power generation company. They maintain power lines. They do all kinds of things. So they have a whole other side of their business. And if this capital can keep rolling over for them, and I think you're going to start to see some other companies do the same thing. Um, it's it's good for the the whole of the energy transition in the states by injecting more capital back into the the mix to build more new facilities. RWE AG has successfully completed the acquisition of Con Edison Clean Energy Businesses. Uh, and if you've just been paying attention there, that's a, that's a huge deal in the United States. It makes RWE the number four renewable energy company in the United States. Uh, the new entity is going to be called RWE Clean Energy LLC. And they have a portfolio of about eight gigawatts of renewable energy projects and a development platform of over 24 gigawatts. Holy smokes. Uh, there's, uh, if you look at RWE's portfolio right at the moment, it's about 60% onshore and 40% uh, on onshore wind, and about 40% in solar uh, to make that eight gigawatts of current capacity. So if, if you've paid attention and listened to some of the rumblings around this, this is really having a lot of effects across the industry because it seems like a really good match between the two. It makes them a much stronger company, RWE, basically standing up its own American division. And there's more, there's more <laughs> try powder here for RWE to go after and acquire uh, other businesses and other renewables. It, it seems like RWE will not be the number four player in renewables in the United States for very long. It's going to try to climb that ladder quickly. Yeah, no, like looking behind the curtain in RWE, they do a good job of managing their assets. Um, they've got a, a large engineering team and their engineering teams uh, I do know, as opposed to some of the other big operators, they they talk across the pond uh, to some of their other compadres over that do a lot of offshore development, you know, in the off the coast of Germany and some other projects, as well as a lot of onshore uh, in northern Europe. So, not only a U.S. powerhouse, but RW big around the world, and being able to leverage that knowledge uh, can only help them grow quicker. Right. So that we do know that they're a part of uh, some actively developing some offshore wind projects in the U.S. So they have expertise in-house, just like everybody thinks. When I think offshore wind, I think Orsted. That's what I that's what I immediately come to mind. Right. But there's a lot of other players in that market and RWE is one of them. They'll be able to use that uh, that knowledge gained in the European theater to help in the U.S. offshore wise as well. Well, on the offshore side, Rosemary, RWE is doing what basically Phil Totaro has been pointing out is that you have to create a pipeline of wind projects and you need to lock in suppliers for those projects. And RDB is doing that with Yondanol, which is a offshore construction company based in Luxembourg. And I think that's actually originally from Belgium. I think the family that runs it is from Belgium. Uh, but they've, they've signed an agreement with RWE for two of their largest and most innovative uh, installation vessels. Uh, which plays into the industry in general. Like you've taken two of the, probably the best assets off, off the docket so their companies can't use them. Uh, and so there's really two ships here. There's the Lay Elise. I'm going to murder this name, of course, uh, which is a, a vessel designed for installing wind turbine foundations. And they've RWE chartered it for more than five years. Man. That's a big deal. Uh, that ship has a capacity up to 5,000 tons and a, a deck loading capacity of 61,000 tons. That's a huge ship. Joel, how how big of a ship bed is, is that? Oh, uh, I think if they're jack-ups, right? With a, if it's 130 meter long jack-up legs, I would say that that thing's probably 
300 meters long to, to 280 to 300 meters long, somewhere in there? Well, because the other ship is called the Voltaire, which is they're saying is the world's largest jack-up installation ves- vessel. Holy moly. And RDB has booked it for four years, starting in 2027. It has a crane capacity of 3,200 tons and especially designed 130-meter long legs. And it's particularly suited for putting wind farms out in deep waters, which RDB has some of those set up already. Uh, So essentially, if you're a big player and you and you need to go to do big projects, you better hook up with another big player that can actually finish those projects and lock them in. Because if you don't, one of your competitors is going to grab those assets. Isn't, isn't that what's happening right now? Yeah, absolutely. It, Rosemary, a question for you. Now, we've talked a little bit about the offshore wind development going uh, on in Australia. What stage are they at and when will they be ready for vessels down there? Uh, it, I mean, nothing is physically happening yet. I kind of, um, I got so excited when <laughs> they started talking about offshore wind in Australia and started trying to, you know, network to um, hopefully be able to be part of that myself. But everybody that I talked to was like, we are so far away from needing <laughs> any engineers that know about, you know, specific technologies that was a couple of years ago. I probably ought to start, um, yeah, getting getting back involved. But it's more like progress has definitely been made, but it's more on the like um, regulatory side. You know, we're developing a framework for how you will um, be able to get environmental approvals and how you will be able to get, you know, a lease over a, an area of the ocean to install your turbines. Um, so the front-running project is Star of the South, and um, they have a major project status, I think, for their their project. Um, and, yeah, it's time for me to dip back in and see where they're at. But as far as I know, they haven't selected turbines yet. They're just kind of looking out to the future and saying, okay, around the time that we're going to want to install turbines, they'll probably be, you know, 16 megawatts. So let's get approvals for something about that size and, you know, work towards it. And then close to the date, they'll check in and see where is technology at. And then I, I hope that these, um, yeah, offshore developers will get in touch with me through part of Luke Consulting to help them pick the right the right turbine for them. So I say as, as those developers get closer to making these decisions, this is something they definitely need to think about is making a move like RWE did here because uh, these vessels that that Jan or Jan de Newell has, there's multiple of them from different companies floating around the North Sea. There can't be a whole lot of this stuff in the APAC region. I mean, there's some in Taiwan right now working, but there's not a whole lot like down into Australia to pick from. So someone's going to need to make these moves quicker than quicker than they think, probably. Yeah, you're going to be out in like 2035 if you decide to try to lock something in. I think we started doing some some drilling, and it'll be it'll be before 2030 that they start installing. Um, but I don't know how how long before. But it is really interesting that all the supply chain stuff and the logistics as well. Like when I think about renewable energy technologies, I have traditionally thought of yeah, like wind turbines, solar panels, batteries, um, all those sorts of things. But the I mean, development is still going on there. But I'm seeing more and more that the like the crucial the the bottlenecks for actually getting, you know, um, renewables and energy transition projects on the ground or in the ocean, the bottlenecks aren't those technologies themselves. They're all of the supporting stuff. It's no surprise that companies like Xlinx, the one that's trying to make a, a subsea interconnector between Morocco and the UK, 
you know, they have seen, okay, we're going to, we're going to struggle and they're yeah building their own ships they're building their own cable manufacturing facility and i think that we're going to see a lot a lot more of that sort of thing if people want to be able to bid for really big projects then they need to be 100% sure that they can deliver and the main way that you can be 100% sure you can deliver is if you own the the means of of that so um that's going to mean yeah, vertical integration of manufacturing components and also, uh, yeah, in- installation. Hey, Uptime listeners. We know how difficult it is to keep track of the wind industry. That's why we read PES Wind Magazine. PES Wind doesn't summarize the news. It digs into the tough issues. And PES Wind is written by the experts so you can get the in-depth info you need. Check out the wind industry's leading trade publication, PESWind at PESWind.com. Rosemary, at what point do you say to yourself as an as an owner of a wind farm and a developer of a wind farm, if I put it at 15 megawatt turbines and I have to do all the cabling for 15 megawatt and the ships, Joel, for 15 megawatts, that it just starts to stack up. Like, like you get fewer and fewer assets to actually do this and the risk gets so big you're just better off putting in four megawatt turbines, just more of them. For the fact of the matter, I can find a ship to put them in. I know how to do that. And the cabling gets a lot easier. It just lowers the overall cost of the project. It may end up having more time in the water to put all these turbines in, but the financial risk is way less to do it. Yeah, I think that's uh, those are there's some really cool ROI models that someone uh, I would say I'm not going to say cool. I'd say how about some really in-depth ROI models that someone needs to create. It's a lot of spreadsheet time for someone to make those decisions because you got to factor in so many things, right? Uh, the P- PPA costs, or you know, what your offtake is going to look like in the end. So the life of the wind farm, how much money can you actually make? What it takes to install? What the o- what the O and M budgets will be on those smaller machines? You know, because a lot for a long time, a lot of the northern European offshore wind farms are eight megawatt machines. Right. They're not, there's not a whole lot of, I mean, there is a whole lot of those smaller ones out there. So, you know, the, the, when you start talking, even like now you get into like the whole supply chain, the insurance wise, because now if the insurance company needs to have that one vessel that can install those blades or that thing across the world, all of a sudden that premium goes through the roof. Right. It seems like, again, we're going to be driven by the insurance companies, but even in the, in the, the loan factor of the cable that goes on shore, right? That if you're talking, I've seen some discussions most around HVDC and just raising the voltage and raising the voltage, which makes the cabling much more complex and risky, in my opinion, because it's new. Uh, do you do two lower voltage systems and come on shore in two different places just because you want to break up the risk? It seems like at some point the spreadsheet should be telling you there's too much risk in this basket and we need to simplify this whole equation, right? Well, I think so, but I don't make those decisions. Well, that's what Rosemary's for. She's the one who should be doing all the calculations, right? That seems like a good engineering with Rosie episode, right? Like, there, if I put in, like Joel was saying, eight megawatt machines, I have double of them, and, and versus fifteen megawatt, is it more cost efficient to do that? It, it it's got to be close. I guarantee that those spreadsheets exist in multiple uh, people's desks around the world. Um, and I mean, yeah, it's, it, you see this all through engineering, it, you know, multi-variable optimization. You've got, you know, a bunch of different things, some things, um, 
yeah, a bunch of different factors when you're deciding, am I going to go bigger or, or smaller? And I, I did make a video on, you know, one small part of that. Um, yeah, I think it's called something like how big can wind turbines get and looking at, you know, what's the for just for the turbine itself and not for all that other stuff that you mentioned, you know, what's the, the best size to go for? What will give you the cheapest um, uh, electricity at the end of the day? And you know, there's a bunch of factors that say bigger is better and, and cable connections is one of those from what I understand. I mean, I'm no not really an expert in that. I've been looking into it a lot recently, but um, still got a lot to learn. But fewer connections is is good. Fewer cables is good. I mean, it's going to cost you the same amount nearly to fix a fault in, yeah, like a, I don't know, a one one megawatt cable compared to a, a five megawatt cable. So uh, I think that you're still in favor of having fewer, bigger ones for those sorts of things. But then structurally, usually smaller is better um, because as you increase the size of something, then so with a wind turbine, you, in, you say you double the length of the blade, then you're going to sweep out four times the, the area. So you get four times the power, the power increases with the square of the length of the blade, but the, the volume and therefore the mass of the system increases with the cube because you're in, you know, um, scaling in three dimensions. So you usually end up favoring smaller things structurally. I mean, it's why, you know, gymnasts are small. They uh, can jump jump higher because they've got a smaller mass for, um, you know, not that much smaller strength. It's the same. It, it is. It's the same same effect that says that structurally things appear to be smaller. And so you've always got this balance of um, what's the right size to make something. Um, and it changes all the time as technology changes because, you, you know, like we would like to have taller towers for onshore wind turbines for example bigger turbines would be nice there but there's a constraint that the you can only fit a certain diameter of tower on a road if you want to drive it you know in a normal truck on a normal road without too many road closures then you're limited in the diameter the way towers are built now they you know you, you ship a whole a whole section of tower in in place um so that's a constraint that's keeping onshore wind turbines small it's like at any time we're optimized for the size that something should be but it changes all the time and I think with offshore what the challenge is is that you're trying to imagine what the constraints will be so now it's hard to get your hands on ships but your project you need the ship in you know five years eight years or something um Will that constraint exist then if you assume that this is going to be your driving constraint and you go for small turbines, but because everybody just kept on talking in the media and on podcasts about how big a problem there is with ship supply, you know, maybe thousands of new shipbuilders um, sprung up and now ships are super, super cheap in um, 2030. Everyone's got, you know, ships, the market's been flooded, people are discounting their prices to just, you know, get someone to use their ship. Um, you're going to look pretty silly if you're putting in one megawatt wind turbines and everybody else is putting in 20 megawatt wind turbines um, because you assumed that the ships would be a constraint. So that's why I think you try and you try and kind of like loosely plan your project and only lock in details as you move closer towards it once you get a better idea about what the constraints are going to be. But is it silly? I don't I don't think it's silly. Okay, and and the reason I say that is you know what. You have to have a defined, roughly defined cost of what it's going to take to put these turbines in 
an offshore project. Same thing for onshore. It's the same equations, pretty much. But it, once you know that cost of that project, it's sort of, uh, Joel, what's the term I'm looking for? It's, uh, it's a sunk cost. It's like a sunk cost, right? The equation works out on producing the power. If you can produce the power and make money at the end, then everything sort of works out in the end, right? I mean, you know how much power that farm is going to produce. It may, and with the IRA bill and all the production tax credits and all that going into it, it gets a little murky. I'm not sure bigger is better in this situation. And I, w- I want to tie this into something that Vic Bates said from uh, GE Vernova. And I'm, I'm not going to quote him, but uh, generally where he was going, he's running the onshore division. I think it's the CEO of, the, of GE Vernova's onshore, which is they're going to slash a number of towers being built. They're going to slash a number of wind turbine blade types are being built. They're going to slash a number of nacelles being built. They're going to basically simplify the process. Again, I think that may come down to all, all the other pieces, not only just what GE has to build, but everything else. You got different trucks to haul them around. You got different kinds of insulation techniques. You got all the stuff you got to go do. It may not just be the OEM piece, but also the customer piece that you just makes it too damn complicated. We need to standardize the trucks we use to haul blades around in. Investors had the same, an article just like that the other day too. Um, and it's basically says it's time to slow down on turbines if we really want to scale up the offshore wind industry. So basically, basically saying, yeah, continuous rapid introduction of larger new models is hindering efforts to establish sustainable and robust supply chains. And that's from Vestas Brass. Vestas are always whinging, whinging about what everybody else is doing. Uh, they, Vestas always seem to just want to stand stand still and not um, develop any further. It, it's weird because, you know, like if you look back at their history, Vestas has a good history of trying out innovative stuff and, um, you know, progressing their technology. Um, they've got some, you know, more of those like really in the sky kind of crazy out there ideas that they've pursued to see what they could learn from that but recently like the last couple of years all you hear is Vesta's wishing that you know like what do they want to go back to those old like drag type wind turbines that you know the old farmer ones with about 50 different um sails on them is <laughs> we could really perfect that if we all just you know all just agreed to to make those um I don't know. Like, yeah, they're, they're right that if you would make just tons and tons of the exact same product, it would go better. But you have to um, have the right product as well. I mean, looking back over the last decade, would would they say, oh, yeah, we should have stopped in, um, you know, in 2013? What were we at? Like, I don't know, like a, a three megawatt turbine would have been a big a big one back then, right? Like, oh, we should have stopped there and just perfected that. I mean, no, wind, wind energy has gotten so much cheaper in the, um, the time it's happened since then. It's super challenging time for businesses to make money, but you've got to keep on developing, surely. Yeah, I think it's like a the pendulum swing though, right? Like it, it, and that happens with everything. Everything is cyclical, right? So we went through, you know, we went through this crazy fast period of innovation and technical change, and now it's, it almost seems like the OEMs are calling for the pendulum to swing back like let's slow down a little bit more and per, kind of perfect these. And and in 20 years maybe this pendulum will swing back the other way and we'll go on this another crazy streak again, but I think they're kind of they're getting caught by all these warranty claims and things, so they're like, "Man, we need to and saying like that that thing from Vestas to me sounds like in the background was sitting in a conference room going like, "How do we 
how do we get away from some of these warranty claims, but like put some stuff out there so it doesn't feel like we're saying we can't survive these warranty claims? Well, you say, hey, we need to slow down this thing to you know optimize our supply chains. Well, in all, in reality, you need to stop innovating so fast because you're getting burned by warranty claims. And that's to me, it's back and forth. Yeah, but I think I mean the warranty claims. They kind of lag, right? So, I mean, definitely there was a burst in um, innovation in probably all of the manufacturers, I don't know, from I don't know, around 2015 plus or minus a few years. Um, for, for a few years, there's so many different changes um, in terms of materials and design features um, and size of turbines. And it's now that those warranty issues are becoming apparent. And we talked about the, um, you know, there was that DNV report last week that, you know, went through the, the, the fact that there are more claims now. Um, and I think every manufacturer goes through cycles, cycles of that and has over their lifetime. Um, you go through a cycle of rapid innovation um, and then a few years after that, then you go through a, a cycle of, oh, my God, we've got so many warranty claims. We're nearly going to go bankrupt over it and everyone gets scared and, and slows down a bit. Um, I think maybe it was kind of coordinated between all the manufacturers this time. So, you know, everybody is is suffering like that. But I think we're probably naturally at that next phase. I, I think Vestas is maybe, I don't know, obviously they, they're in the industry um, as much as I am or more so. And so they they know what's going on. But it seems like they're kind of, you know, reacting to something that's actually quite a few years in the past now. And, I mean, there is naturally a, um, you, you know, changing. It's a, it's a cyclical thing, the innovation, the warranty claims, <laughs> um, you know, settle, take stock, and then, you know, in another 10 years' time there'll be another burst of innovation and, and warranty claims. But the technology changes have, have happened and now we need to get, make them more reliable. My question is, is GE Vernova competing against Avestus or on a bigger scale, are they competing against solar and battery? I think that's where the real battle is. They know what Vestas is. They know what Nordex is, right? They, they know what that product line is, but you're competing against an ever lower cost solar, easy to install, not a lot of constraints to get it to where it needs to go kind of industry. Isn't that where the, the Vernovas of the world have to compete against. And that's why they're doing all these things. It's not just saying it, which, it's a wind world. If you look at RWE, their portfolio is split like 50-50 roughly between solar and onshore wind. That will change dramatically. If wind continues not to rapidly you know, improve and be more stable, that RWEs of the world just install more solar and more batteries. So isn't that the real constraint is solar and batteries not that are competitors in wind? In a way, I think you're right that um, there, if solar never got cheap, then we would have seen wind filling a lot of the the role that solar does now and batteries are getting cheap, which makes solar plus batteries even more similar to wind. But if you look at any of the, the scenarios and any of the countries' continents that I've seen them plan out, uh, you know, a net zero scenario or at least a highly re- variable renewable scenario, you usually see more wind than solar, even though everyone expects solar to be a lot cheaper. Everyone expects batteries to get cheaper again. But the fact is that adding more solar means that you need more storage and um, storage is still you know, ex- expensive, even as cheap as it can get. 
So the more wind you have, the less storage you need. And especially, it's especially crucial for the stuff that um, batteries can't do. So batteries are never going to help you meet your winter load if you know if you've got a ton of solar in your system and that's mostly generating in the summer lithium-ion batteries are not going to help you be able to ride through the winter in a, in a system like that just christmas day that's it though after that you got to get some more juice going flowing back through yeah so so there's there's that so i think that um yes solar if solar never got cheaper than wind we would see more of the easy kind of wind but i think you also have to look um further and when I see people focusing on offshore and especially floating offshore, you know, everyone thinks this is so crazy. Why would you be, you know, fixed bottom offshore is double the levelized cost of energy of onshore wind, right? So you're like, why would you do that? And then floating uh, more again, I mean, there's not so many uh, of them to be able to really get a good figure for it, but you know, like a, a lot more expensive, but people make the mistake of thinking that it's floating offshore wind competing with onshore wind and it's not. It's competing with stuff like liquid hydrogen exports or, you know, the floating offshore is to massively expand the kinds of areas that can generate large volumes of renewable energy. So, you know, it's going to mean that Japan can put floating offshore in instead of having to get liquid hydrogen from Australia, for example, or instead of having to have, you know, um, a subsea cable, you know, Japan doesn't want to get a large chunk of the electricity from China by a subsea cable. They just don't trust it. And um, so it's those kind of trade-offs that floating offshore and um, probably fixed bottom offshore to a lesser extent are involved in. Um, I think it's really misleading or, yeah, it's just it's wrong to think of these technologies competing with onshore wind or, or solar because these the, the whole reason why people are willing to spend so much on these technologies is that it it's filling those really hard, hard use cases. Oh, sure. I think they're totally right about that. But I think you pointed out the same thing I'm pointing out. If wind, onshore wind is competing with onshore solar, offshore wind is competing against something else, right? And if it makes better sense from an engineering and a financial standpoint, if I'm running these companies like a Vernova, that I want to just get lean and focus on things that are profitable and not try to make 50 variants. I think that's where everybody's getting to. Vestas is, is saying it in a different way than Vernova saying it, but basically saying the same thing. like. Yeah, we're getting pushed from these outside forces, which are not even in wind. We need to make wind as profitable as we can. Here's how we do it. I mean, I, I agree. I think, though, that um, wind and solar are helping each other ultimately, because without really cheap solar um, or without really cheap wind, then you would never be able to conceive of 100% renewable electricity grids. I mean, with only one or the other, then you truly would need something like nuclear or, you know, I don't know, something something else that doesn't exist to, to fill it in. But between the two of them, wind and solar, you can get um, pretty, pretty damn close to 100% renewable pretty much everywhere in the world. And so I, I think that ultimately, this, you know, they might be squabbling over, you know, who gets the bigger piece of the pie. But the fact is that the pie is way bigger because there's both involved. And so I, th I think that ultimately it's still good for, for both 
wind and solar that the other one exists and is cheap and reliable. Wind turbine blade damage occurs every day all around the world and finding knowledgeable engineers to get your blades back in service is a serious problem. And as we know, operating with damaged blades is really, really risky. Well, there is a solution. Meet Windpower Lab, your ultimate partner for blade risk management. Windpower Lab's team specializes in all things blades, from in-factory inspections and root cause analyses to aftermarket product guidance and end of warranty campaigns. It's time to get those damaged blades back working for you. Connect with the global blade experts at Windpower Lab by visiting windpowerlab.com. Scotland-based Balmoral has now introduced a new patented product aimed at significantly reducing scour phenomena around fixed wind turbines. Uh, you know, scour is when the, the ocean gets turbulent around a tower and starts to erode the seabed and expose cables and do all kinds of, of, of bad things, which are very expensive. And typically uh, around, and Joel, correct me if I'm wrong here, but around the base of a monopile, they'll put a bunch of rocks essentially in a bag <laughs> to prevent erosion. Or even without a bag, they just dump rocks there too. I mean, yeah, because the thing, the thing you got to think about here is, um, so a lot of the, most of the fixed bottom offshore wind in the world is in the North Sea. It's, you know, off, in, in between mainland Europe and the UK. And that water body has a almost constant but they they shift and move just like the winds do in the sky but they have a two to three knot subsea current almost constantly right to the point where you almost sometimes have to have special like you can't put a small inspection class rov down some days because they don't have the staying power to hold themselves against the current so so you think about Think about like everybody's been to a river, right? You look in the river and you see that rock sitting there and the the cavitation behind it where there's the eddy, right? Where sometimes like if you're a fisherman, you know, you can fish around the edges there because the fish will hang there because the, all the little worms and bits and grubs get caught in that eddy and they sit there. That same eddy scours behind that rock and creates a divot in what would be the, the bed of the river. The exact same thing happens to an offshore wind turbine. The water hits it and then it creates that cavitation behind it, creates an eddy behind the tower where it's on the seafloor and it scours it out. It, it scoops that sand and stuff out of there. Yeah, and it's a big problem and you have to address it. So right now, if they're they're dumping rocks there and what Biomoral is saying and because Scotland is a birthplace of golf, right? I mean, it, it's, I'm right about that, I think. Uh, they've developed this little scour protection system, which basically is like a sleeve with a bunch of uh, dimples on Not necessarily dimple, but raised areas. So it kind of looks like the inverted golf ball <laughs> in a sense. So they're trying to create uh, a little bit of turbulence around the foundation such that the water flow doesn't get, get those eddies built up in it and start to scour behind it. Uh, it. So it's sort of an interesting technique, right? It 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 does make life a little bit simpler. They're talking about uh, because of the rock dumping and all the things that have to happen, there, there's chances for problems with that. But uh, Joel, do, do they have to go inspect after the rock dump or even look to see every, every year or so to make sure that the scour protection in terms of rocks is still working? I assume there's some sort of check that has to happen yeah i mean it's like any any major infrastructure project you're going to do an you're going to do you have you've designed everything in the office you're going to go and execute that design and then you're going to do an as-built survey so you're going to go subsea you're going to inspect and they are a lot of times when you're doing rock dumps that are that are uh, specifically 
intricate, you're inspecting them as you lay the rocks. Sometimes they'll place those rocks with an ROV and then watch with another one to make sure that everything's in the right spot and everything's good. So that, that, that process can get quite expensive. But at a minimum, yes, once you dump, you'll go back and do a scan to make sure that everything looks good. And if not, you got to fix it at that time because otherwise you know, it's useless, right? But um, yeah, I mean, the, if you're if you know anything about, and I don't want to get too deep here, but vortex-induced vibration, it's basically the same thing we're talking about when water hits or air can be the same thing hits that monopile. If you if you're again if you're driving a boat and you try to stick a pole down in the water, it will sit there. It'll start doing vibrating back and forth, left and right, left and right, left and right. But you, if you put, because when the water goes around it, it creates that cavitation, it'll pull it left, pull it right, pull it left, pull it right, pull it left, pull it right. So that's that's kind of the same thing. So the, what, the tool that you use or the engineering design that you use uh, to, to eliminate vortex-induced vibration is called a strake. And a strake basically is, will go around the, the object. If you ever see a t turbine tower, sometimes you see them in very windy areas that have strakes on them, even in the air. That's to break up the airflow around the tower so it doesn't vibrate. It's just like the antenna on my car. It's got that little wire that wraps around it to keep it from vibrating so much. Otherwise, it'll sit there and vibrate because it sort of breaks up the airflow around it. And if you know that the air is always going to come from one direction, you can actually just put like a V on the back of it and the water will flow. It's just, it's just, it's like hydrodynamic modeling, right? But if you don't know which way it's going to come all the time, then you put these strakes on there, then it protects it in general. So this idea of these rock bags with the dimples on them is like having a more of a three-dimensional strake to, to induce turbulence, to break up the uh, specific water flow around them. Well, I, I think this is a cool idea. So what they're talking about is you, you put in the, the monopile foundation, you slide the sleeve of this hex defense over top, and then you build the rest of the turbine on top of it. And the theory goes is that you don't have to do a lot of inspection. You kind of set it, forget it. And I guess that would make sense. You know, you're not going to know until you put it out in service for a long time and check it, but it's a cool idea. And it, you don't see a lot of new ideas around foundations and scour. Uh, but this is, this is interesting. So I, I would like to just follow them to see if they get some, some sales and where they're, where they're headed. I think there's some places in the United States where this may make a lot of sense. Well, Kansas State has done it again. The Kansas State University's Wildcat Wind Power Group has emerged victorious in the prestigious collegiate wind competition for the second consecutive year. Now, Rosemary, you and I saw this competition down in San Antonio at ACP 2022. And we wandered around the all the engineers and <laughs> watched them compete. It, it's a really serious competition. Yeah, it's cool. They bring like portable um, wind tunnels into the into the hole so that they can uh, test out their their designs. And there's a few different categories. I, I this one, I guess they're older. The one I was mostly looking at when I was there was the, the kid wind, which is I think elementary school age kids. And you know they've got to make a. I think they were making floating offshore, the one that we saw, and they even had wave tanks, like a wave tank there inside the wind tunnel. They brought that into the hole, and that was pretty cool, seeing the designs that kids had come up with to, you know, they're trying to solve the same problems that um, wind energy engineers are. You make sure that the turbine doesn't fall over and that it can generate a lot of energy. Um, and I guess that that's the same for the university age 
age one as well, but maybe with, you know, a little bit, a little bit more sophisticated designs and manufacturing methods. Well, yeah, K-State's uh, Wildcat Wind Power competed against 11 other schools. And this competition takes basically an academic year. Uh, and they're tasked with designing, building, and testing model wind turbines uh, and presenting their creations <laughs> at the competition, which was in Boulder, Colorado. A really nice place to, to have a competition. Uh, yeah, it's great. Uh, I'm not sure where next year's is going to be. I haven't seen uh, anything from the Department of Energy where uh, the 2024 competition is going to be. But you'd like to see more colleges participate in this because it's a really good engineering exercise. It's kind of like some of the F SAE off-road, SAE aircraft competitions, which Rosemary, I think you competed in some of those, right? Yeah, yeah, I did. I did um, the... Uh... Aero Design, SAE Aero Design West. I uh, did that five times, including one time when I was at UC Davis in the US. The rest of the time was at my my real university, an Australian one. Um, that was really cool. And then while I was in America, I also was on the team for Human Powered Vehicle, which was a, a similar one. Um, and I did dabble a tiny bit with the Formula SAE um, back at the Australian National University, but it was aero design was the main one I did. Um, and I have often said that I learned as much or more real engineering in that project than I did in the whole rest of my degree combined because it's so, so different to, you know, you have an open-ended design problem um, instead of, you know, like when you're doing your, your homework and or studying for exams, doing exam questions, it's like, you know, here's a problem, there's one one solution to it, try and get the right answer. But then when you go out and you work as an engineer, it's not about that anymore. Um, and it's not about, you know, just working longer and longer and longer to try and get um, more <laughs> closer to the exact right answer. It's about how far can you get in the time that you've got available? Um, all sorts of other real world constraints, like uh, I don't know, being able to access the the workshop, um, being able to fundraise. The fundraising was one of the the aspects, the things that I learned during my time on that team that I never would have thought was a real engineering skill. But you need that, even when you you know you go into a company and you're like, we should do this project. Then you have to fundraise within your company to um, to find find the funds for that. You have to convince people that this is the right project to do. Um, not to mention all the manufacturing, you know, you learn so much more about um, manufacturability when you're, you're making something, you test it, it breaks, you fix it. It's yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Rosemary, there were sponsors last year, right? The, the, those teams had corporate sponsors. Some of them did. I thought that they did. Yeah, I, I bet they they would have. We, um, I, yeah, I did all the the fundraising. I think while I was at um, ANU, and I approached places like the um, Civil Aviation Authority. Um, they they sponsored one year. Um, just you know, companies, uh, engineering companies in the area that were trying to re recruit that they, you know, they wanted to get their name out there so that um, students might consider working for them. Um, trying to think what other kinds of companies. Uh, yeah, just lots of, lots of companies that just want, you know, just think it's, it's cool. It's not, you know, a few thousand dollars was a big deal for our team, but doesn't matter that much to a big company. So some, you know, often they would do it just because, you know, they see kids having a go and want to, want to help out. I'd like to see them do the finale for it like they did last year in San Antonio. Do it at the ACP event. We're in Minneapolis next year. Like host the thing back there where you can get everybody. And then those students not only 
could they possibly get some sponsorship from some of these asset owners or other people in the industry? But they get direct exposure to them. You've got all of them, the same people walking around the same hall and have them come in, give them free free access to the event and expose them to the wind industry. I think that's that's a win-win for me. They could pass our resumes around. Yeah, ex- exactly. I was just going to say I was hiring for um, my consulting business and my YouTube channel and the guy that I, I hired to yeah do engineering and research his he was straight out of school but he had been the technical director for the formula sae team and i i know what that means you know that is that is fantastic management experience and project management experience um much i would much rather uh someone with experience like that than someone that had spent a couple of years in a, a graduate program where you're still kind of getting you know spoon spoon fed tasks to do and very clear expectations and yeah it's worked out really well because he is so proactive he easily sees what you know what's the deliverable that needs to be done and then problem solves to to get there and only um yeah, it comes to me when when there's a roadblock, but doesn't in general need his handheld the whole way through. And I think that that's the kind of skills that you learn from these kinds of projects. And I hope that other employers see how how valuable that is because it is like getting someone with a few years work experience rather than you know comparing to someone that has only been at university, only studying to get good grades and not learning any of that stuff that you you need to be able to actually function in a workplace. Yeah, well. well- Congratulations to Kansas State and all the competitors. We hope to see you, like Joel said, in Minneapolis next year. Well, off the shore of the Netherlands, uh, the last wind turbine has been installed at the Hollandse Kustzud wind farm, making it the largest offshore wind farm in operation. Uh, Hollandse Kustzud basically means <laughs> Netherlands South Coast. I think that's what that means in America talk. Uh, it has a capacity of one and a half gigawatts. It's a huge farm. And it's being developed by Vattenfall. It's the first uh, subsidy-free offshore wind farm, uh, they say, in the world. But I don't know if that's true. Well, I mean, maybe it is. Maybe it, maybe it is, because America has done very little. Yeah, we definitely subsidize everything. That, that's true. Okay. Uh, they're installing 139 wind turbines. And Joel and Rosemary, if you remember, they were supposed to install 140 wind turbines, but they had that ship go astray and run into one of the <laughs> monopiles. And so they knocked it down one, that one monopile is still damaged sitting in the water, but it sounds like they're talking about removing it, maybe putting a turbine back in its place. But this is a big milestone. A one and a half gigawatt uh, wind farm is a huge step for renewable energy. So the Hollandse Kusazud wind farm is our wind farm of the week. Congratulations to Vattenfall. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform and subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter. And check out Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast.